Hello, and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we live lives that unleash courage and love, and not only in the small ways, or the big ways that seem almost impossible for us sometimes, but in the small ways that build to something larger. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and I am joined here with Reverend Gretchen. Hey, Gretchen. Hello, it's so good to be here. How are you doing on these, uh, these last few days in March? Is it still March? It is. It is, in fact, still March. Oh, the time is so confusing. Um, you know, I'm, I feel like the weather here in Colorado, which is um, we're in that stage of spring where it's like 70 degrees one minute and then you're getting a, um, extreme weather notice from about how there's going to be snowfall the next no- minute. So I just I feel really like that. Whiplashy. <laughs> all over the place. and. Um, and not sure what's going to come next. So that's about, that, that's where I'm at. It feels like March. Now we are diving into a new series all about regeneration. And I guess I'm curious, to, we're going to hear a message that you, you shared. What was your kind of motivation for this series and, and for writing th- the message that you shared? You know, what about this moment, both in the cycle of the earth, but also in this moment in human history, kind of motivated you to, to share the message that we're going to hear in just a few minutes? I think that, um, you know, we've spent the last, well, since like the fall of 2016, talking about how do we find motivation and hope to deal with things that feel um hopeless and by that i mean like things that we that for many people you know long before you and i joined the movement um have been working to make progress on um and in these years it has felt like that progress was undone Um, and so we've spent all this time, you know, the last five years plus trying to preach into and speak into and minister into this question of, okay, what do we do when it feels like this stuff that we've been working towards, maybe it's not materializing or it's even slipped backwards from where we thought. And by that, I mean, efforts of human rights and, um, human health and flourishing and um, work for the on behalf of the earth um and so um that has all been true and then in the last um i would say over the course of the pandemic and then i don't know something about the this the war in ukraine i just there's just been a kind of leveling up what i've seen of exhaustion and burnout in in our community and it it leads to a place of just literally feeling like uh, what do we how do we even engage with life despair. and what I, with despair right and you know we've we've dealt with that like kind of and take it's a similar theme but it's kind of next level and what i really appreciated about this this was offered this framework was offered from our climate justice team um, 
uh, about two months ago. And I really appreciated the ways that it it offered a different framework um, for how to approach the the challenges, the problems. And instead of going right towards the problems, it offered a a more hopeful or generative, to I mean to use the term, um, way of looking at it. And it just it felt like an alternative path in. And I think right now we need like we're looking for sources of that will stimulate our imagination, our collective imagination. And this felt like a way towards that. And so I, I, it's, um, I also really appreciated that it, it moved towards beauty. Um, that there's something, if you go to this, uh, regeneration is we, we built this idea off of uh, Paul Hawkins book called regeneration. And then the website regeneration.org and that website, if you go there, it's just filled with beautiful images and his book is filled with beauty. And I think we can spend so much time in the devastation that we can lose sight of the beauty. And I just, I felt like, like that felt like a way forward that was through beauty. So that was the, the big, broad <laughs> motivation behind it. I think uh, you had posted a message on our internal messaging about a desire to do something about the wave of anti-trans, anti-queer um, uh, legislation that we're seeing perpetuated in various states across the country. Um, and I feel like it fits so perfectly into this frame. So could you share a little bit about your impulse? Yeah, sure. Um, all right. Well, I mean, the most famous or well-known anti queer movement right now is the Florida bill that's been, you know, come to be termed the don't say gay um, bill. And, you know, I've been having the sense like we as a church needed to respond and to what's the, to that notion, which I think the, um, the impulse personally and collectively in these kinds of moments where the threat increases and the the i mean it's real danger for some of us um is is to get um to go in the closet to get more quiet and and that's sometimes a very real practical strategy but sometimes it's a psychological reaction to some to a threat that um that this is a reaction and so what i started to think is instead of Instead of uh, going in the closet, that now is the time. The phrase that came to me is now is the time that the, now is not a time to pass. And that we needed those of us who have a, um, a privilege and some a degree of safety, we need to get more visible. And so then <laughs> I, I, which is one of the reasons I cut my hair off, is I felt like I, um, I needed to get more visible and that we collectively need to acknowledge that silence doesn't save us and we need actually to do the opposite. And so then as a church, then how do we need to, um, how, how do we need to respond? Um, I think that, so I had this idea of crossing out the words, don't say gay and instead say, be more gay. And so be, be more gay. And then our church could celebrate not just the like 
tolerance of being gay or say gay, <laughs> that we should be more gay and that we should encourage people through our faith to be more queer, to be more, to, to, to be more, um, subversive in whatever way is our version of that. And then we could celebrate and encourage that and put, put, um, love and creativity around that and that whatever impulse you have in yourself that's uh, latent <laughs> um to take this moment where people are saying don't even say the very basic word gay and instead do the opposite mm. get get be more and so that's the impulse i had out Out, of, and, outlandish what right out Fierce. out <laughs> out and be more visible be more queer and it and especially because i think there are young people um youth young adults kids who are actively wondering how they're going to navigate their personhood in these days and especially those of us that have a degree of that we've been through this um and that I, I mean that like you don't have to be queer for that to be true, that you've been through a degree of understanding yourself and you have a comfort with who you are and being in the world that, that to be more of that, to be, mm -hmm. to be more of whatever that is and to really um, to let that nonconformity, whatever that is, be celebrated. Right. There, there's a way in which like just like the the bills coming in and trying to stop people from talking about it. As you say, the reaction can be like, okay, we're going to talk about it. But there's this like insidious part of the bill which says that like the thing that we are not supposed to talk about is not okay. And and even if it is okay, it's it's like it should just be kind of like um swept into the closet if you will and so that i love the impulse of like be more gay because it's not even like hey you're okay if you're gay it's like actually we we gayness is good and, right, and so more gayness would be more good right we don't need to make gay safe for anybody you right. know gay is safe <laughs> You know, just like I think that's the impulse of going in the closet is like, or to tamper it down or just to or like, like, we're just like you. We're, we're going to make it minimal impact on anyone. No, we're going to make a big impact. We want to be more of what this thing is that feels scary because actually it's not scary. It's liberating, which is scary, but it is liberating. It's liberating for all, for all of us to be able to be more of whoever we are and to have the freedom to explore that. So, and I think that is where you get back to the generativity that, you know, that we, that it, it's a move, not, not to try to like solve, um, you know, to find some middle ground or to, to solve some, um, burden, a problem we're facing, but, but to turn towards a place of creativity and connection and life and flourishing abundance. And just say, where, how would we, would we make our lives about that? And then know that from that flows our healing. Preach. All right, <laughs> let's, 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 let's listen in. There is more to the story about my bully dog and my crocuses. Another way to tell that story I told earlier. It goes like this. 
See, in the summer of 2019, I took an almost four-month sabbatical. During that time, I spent hours and hours every day in my garden where I cleaned and pruned and weeded and watered. I paid attention mostly, which is the core act of gardening I found. I mean, maybe it is the core act of anything. I understand from this time the gift of becoming intensely focused on one thing. Early on, I mean, there was plenty of work that came from this focus of the weeding and the sorting and the watering and moving rocks. But by mid-season, often days, there was nothing to really do except the watching and the noticing. Such a ridiculously small part of the universe in the scheme of things to give so much attention to. And yet in the attention, the magnitude of this seemingly small thing often felt to me overwhelming. There were not enough hours in the day for all that needed my attention. I would like to say that the process itself was the reward. I mean, the time and the focus and the discipline of this practice, the relationship that I felt between this tiny patch of the earth and my body and my life. And it was. And also the change that came, that is the results, the flourishing and the flowering, the abundance that came in response to my attention was even better. I confess I was very pleased with myself and my work. As the season ended, though, so did my sabbatical. My spiritual director and my friends and colleagues all talked with me, counseled me, encouraged me about the shift that I'd need to make to smaller encounters with the garden now that my focus would turn back to church and our shared ministry together. For a few weeks in the transition, it seemed possible. It was then that I planted those crocuses, along with daffodils and irises. But, well, I've always had a hard time with small bites of attention. I tend more towards all or nothing. So as winter came, I looked at the garden less. And also then winter came and shifted what the garden was as it does. My waning attention meant I didn't know the garden as well. Couldn't say for sure all that was happening. This is where the chaos began. I mean, I trusted through it all that spring would return. So, and so would the abundance as it often does. And it was true, mostly. Spring 2020 arrived and along with the global pandemic, came again the flowers and the flourishing. But this time I could not return the glory with my attention. There just wasn't enough time. The less attention I gave, the less attention I gave. I mean, I knew as I would give attention how much work it would be to start again, to tend in the ways I had, and I just couldn't bear to look more closely. It felt like a promise I couldn't keep. And then came our sweet bully. We adopted Archer, our American bulldog, basset hound, we think mastiff mix, in April 2020. And over the summer, he grew. 
and grew and grew and grew. And it turns out Archer loved the garden too, but for different reasons than I had. It was a wonderful playground. He jumped and leaped and dug and chewed, and it looked so fun. Our other dog, Charlie, joined him. They loved the chaos so much, they made more of it. And then more and then more and then more. And then somehow over this time, the seasons turned and until here we are in the spring of 2022 where it is true, the crocuses persist. And around them, now, there is this mess that was for a time stunning and verdant and promising. Not at this part of the season, of course, but it was orderly for a time. It was over time stunning, verdant, promising, already beautiful, and also on the way towards something even better, it seemed to me. So that the mess it is now disappoints not just because of the work it would take in this season to reset, but also because of this idea of continuous progress that despite my understanding theoretically that time is not linear, something in me believes. So it is a loss, not just of what was, but also what hadn't yet been, but by now could have been or should have the next good thing or the even better. This is a story about more than my garden, of course, because there is a mess we all find ourselves in now. It is a shocking mess, a heartbreaking mess, because so many of us put up, put in so much work, we sacrificed and tended, and for a while there was goodness, results, progress, and we had made such beautiful plans about what was yet to come. Now, sometimes when we talk about such things, we can start to lose something in the generalities, these big sweeping headlines. We can lose the particular and the personal. And so I want to say a few words that are personal by talking about my own slice of the mess in this moment. As many of you know, my family has been through a rough few months. Like many other families with kids in school, we had COVID in January, which was not fun. And also the experience left us more vulnerable, by which I mean emotionally. We were grateful for our vaccines and our boosters and the seeming randomness of this virus that in our case meant that the physical experience of COVID was not too bad. As we near the mark of 1 million deaths from the virus in the U.S. in just the last two years, we count ourselves as so lucky. And still, we came to February depleted. And after three weeks with one or more of us ill, we needed to catch up with school and work and life. And so we did what we could, but then a few other really hard things happened. And suddenly there was this mess in the middle of this greater collective mess that we're all in. I'm being vague here because there are three other people in my family whose privacy I want to respect. So I just want to say for me, the last three weeks have included some of the hardest moments of my life. And what I have come to realize in this time is that our family is not unusual. 
so many people are finding themselves in the hardest moments right now. So many people are short-fused and afraid and under-resourced and carrying so much grief and disconnection. I mean, I have to say it's, it's crazy, but I am no longer surprised when I hear about one of our members or our youth going inpatient for mental health care. It has become regular in recent years. There is a lot of mess here. Now, I share some of these personal things for two reasons. First, because I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to all of you and to Sean and to Elaine and the whole staff team who all made it possible for me to take a sudden extra week of leave beyond the week that we'd planned for spring break. The space and time to tend to things, including in myself, were so important. And second, I share because I think it's important to name that the mess that I'm trying to describe today, to talk about what we need to respond to, is not generic. It's not news that happens out there. It is something personal and particular, and it is also different for each of us. And yet also, it is a, all a part of all of us. And it is in this thread that connects us, a thread that is not just flowering trees and baby bunnies and beauty. It is also forest fires and drought and despair. As Mary Oliver write, writes, if God exists, he isn't just butter and good luck. He's also the tick that killed my wonderful dog, Luke. He isn't just church and mathematics. He's the many desperate hands cleaning and preparing their weapons. He is the leaf of grass, the genius, the politician, the poet. We are held together in a great web of interconnection, and it is a web of both pain and pleasure, a web of both the mundane and the miraculous. Like many of you, I grew up with stories about seeds and planting as lessons for life, as good analogies, metaphors. Especially, I remember the story that is told multiple times in the Christian scripture about the farmer. That is the farmer who scattered seeds in three different ways, in good soil, in rocky soil, and in hard soil. The seed that fell on the hard soil, it was eaten by birds. The seed that was on the rocky soil, it gro actually grows really fast, but then dies prematurely because the roots were too shallow. And then some young plants are strangled by weeds in the good soil, but finally some seeds find a home in productive, well-tended soil and grows to produce good fruit. Now, I took many lessons from this story growing up, but the one that, that, that really took was that in order to, for anything to flourish, you need to put in the work you can't just toss things out randomly or carelessly. You need to prepare. Prepare the earth, tend to it, be intentional. You need to focus. You need to sacrifice. And then from all of your work, life grows. This is a story about how life and its flourishing, its saving is mostly up to us. Now, there is a lot of truth in this story, a lot of important lessons that are core to our faith and our culture. 
any gardener knows how important preparation is. It's a true thing, how the off-season cleanup and turning sets the stage long before any seed actually hits the soil. And after the planting, there is a vigilance required, especially for young plants. Weeds, relentless and creative, strangle and choke and make life impossible. I mean, it is one of the reasons that my current heartbreak, my current garden is such a heartbreak, right? Because I can see how much work is ahead. It's just that with this story as the singular framework for life, it is hard not to see our current state as something other than our collective, even our personal failure. Like we were careless, like we let the seed fall onto rocks or in with the weeds. And it is hard then to imagine that our salvation rests anywhere but in the doubling down of our efforting and our sacrifice, which I have to say feels like a very grueling proposition. I mean, I'm not even sure I know what to do to save my little world. Literally and metaphorically, you saw the state of my garden. And if my mess is in turn echoed in a lot of other people's lives right now, why and how should we believe that there's any hope for the whole world to be saved by our efforts? Now you might remember, luckily, there is another story about seeds told not too far after the other, the other one I just shared. It was told uh, in the version that's told in the Gospel of Mark. Once again, a farmer throws seeds onto the earth. And then day and night, as the farmer works on other things, and as the farmer sleeps, the seeds sprout and climb out into the light, even though the farmer doesn't understand how. It's as though the soil itself produced the grain from a sprouted stalk to a ripened fruit. For as much as I know how much my effort matters, our effort matters, I also know that when it comes to gardening and to life, there is a lot happening that doesn't have anything to do with me. A life force that has an insistence I cannot comprehend. The leaves come patient and plodding. When my daughter first arrived, she came home from the hospital when she was just two days old. She was so tiny and vulnerable and we were so scared. And like a lot of first time parents, we checked on her constantly. I remember one of our good friends that saying to us at one point, you know, her life force is strong already. Her impetus is to live. We didn't need to do anything, she meant. It was just in her, in that little baby already. The life force was already there. We didn't need to do anything. Parenthood teaches us again and again about all that is beyond our control, including about the mis this mysterious force of life that persists through the mess of everything. This is the truth that Paul Hawkins invites us to center around in his book and the glorious website that goes along with it at regeneration.org. Rather than directly solving the problems that we face, that is cleaning up that mess, he invites us to join in partnership with this practice he calls regeneration. Regeneration, he writes, means putting life at the center of every action and every decision, which applies to all of creation, grasslands, farms, people, fish, 
wetlands, oceans, and it also applies equally to families, communities, government, nature, and humanity are composed of exquisitely complex networks or relationships, without which forests, lands, oceans, people, countries, and cultures perish. Our planet and youth are telling us the same story. Vital connections have been severed between human beings and nature within nature itself, and between people, religions, governments, and commerce. It is this disconnection that is the source of the crisis. In this moment, in our age, this mess, I know and I feel our temptation to respond with overwhelm and even more disconnection. Hawkins and his work invite us instead to reconnect, reconnect with ourselves and with our neighbors and with the earth. He invites us to bring the world back to life by bringing ourselves back to life. So truly, what brings you to life? And I mean that in the everyday human meaning of that phrase, it is the way that you likely answered the community time question as in what wakes you up and gets you energized and hopeful. And also, I mean to ask what brings you to life in that greater sense? Like what connects you with life in an ultimate sense? What brings you to, brings you to life? After the service, I invite you to spend some time just brainstorming your answers to this question. What brings you to life from both of those two angles? And then throughout the week, you might notice other things and then add them to your list. And then imagine what it would mean to make these things the center, not just of your life, which is already maybe radical, but at the center of our collective lives. Answering it from both ways helps. It makes it so that it's not so personal. What brings you to life and what brings you to life? Rather than efforting our way towards salvation, we make our way in these practices of centering these things to life. We keep turning towards life, keep turning us all towards life. This is the path of regeneration and is the path of life saving life. Other than just imagining it's all on us. Like the green leaves that will come in these coming weeks and over and over keep coming in our world a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us, whatever, whatever chaos the bully made. Return to this strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us, the hurt and the empty. Fine, then. Let's imagine ourselves saying together, you can say it, fine, then. We'll take it. As the new slick leaf unfurls like a fist to an open palm, we'll take it all. Amen. All right, so I want to I want to pick up on something you talked about, which is the the parable in the Bible about the farmer scattering the seeds. Yeah. So so. I'm going to be honest with you. I 
never would have interpreted it like you did. Like, <laughs> I feel like reading that, that, right, your first interpretation of like, oh, the farmer should have done more work was like never how I would have interpreted that. So I'm just wondering, like, why you think you interpreted it like that? Deep childhood messaging, Sean. <laughs> um, it's not that's it's not that I thought that the farmer should have done more work, but that the the ones that were successful yeah. were the ones that where the farmer had put in the work, and so there's like three different options. Farmer tried three ways. The way that was successful was the one that had the most intention. And, and I mean, it's not actually the thing is when you, when you do more, um, uh, biblical research and scholarship around this story, the point is actually not about the person, about the farmer. Um, the, it's a story about, um, it's a story about the nature of faith and that that faith can flourish. I mean, that faith finds itself in many different places or different stages and different different places. Like we're the soil. We're not yeah. the farmer. <laughs> um, and so God's the farmer in that story, actually. And so that God is scattering seeds and that there's all kinds of people at different stages of their lives and that the one that is prepared and that has um intention can receive the soil i mean can receive the seed and that 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 together is where faith flourishes because you have opened your heart and opened your um your life in a way that allows faith to take root so it's that it it really is not about <laughs> I placed myself in the role of the farmer and humans in the role of the farmer, but that's not actually I don't think the main way that people scholars interpret that story or mm -hmm. that I mean who knows I and why I mean why did I interpret it that way or why do I still kind of take that as the main message I mean you know me well enough to know the answer of that but well I think it has to do with like a societal story of meritocracy, the idea Absolutely. that people like get what they put in, which is such a, a capitalist fairy tale um, told by the people that were successful to, 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 to heap moral judgment on those who are not successful by whatever metrics are important in any given right. conversation. And to, say, and to say, well, you obviously didn't put in the work. You, yeah, you didn't put up the work. Um, and, but, but yet that same story is a story that we, we apply to ourselves. I was just talking to a friend going through a breakup and he's saying like, oh, well, my, my, my relationship failed. It must be my fault. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, maybe, mm -hmm. or maybe it's more complex than that. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there there are forces outside of our control and our capacity that exert power on us, which of course makes us feel power, not very powerful, but that that have a big role to play in, in the outcomes 
And so we can't just trust the the outcome to to see uh, the justness of an action, the rightness of an action, the moral character of a person. So I think a big part of this that I take away from it is first that just because things are not flourishing in the way I think they should doesn't mean that I'm failing at something. And that it's like my work not to to be that outcome, but to be be trying to be a good re- receiver of the seeds for, um, that are being planted. Mm. Which which leads me to that that question that you end your sermon with, which is what brings you to life? And and you know, as you were saying that question, I had two different images come to mind. The first image was like bringing my dog on a walk. Um, <laughs> bringing her to a stream that she can drink in, like being on a, her on a leash. You know, sometimes she doesn't want to go some places, but sometimes like it's important to go. So we, we're trying to find ways of, of bringing her to life. Um, but the, and the other image was completely contrasted was the, the noise that my computer makes when it boots up. Like that, like it's like it wasn't alive and now it is. Now it is. I wondered because I think it's maybe tempting to think of like what brings me to life is like what makes me happy. And it's not, it isn't not that, but it's not only that. I, I wondered if you, how do you, like, is there a metaphor, a way of thinking about what brings you to that question, what brings you to life that might be helpful for folks? Well, I think it's it's really important. I, at the end, I talk about the two different ways of thinking of the question. I, I really, when I came to think about that, that felt like a really important insight because there's the first way, the dog version, is the what brings you to life, This the first way of answering that. What makes you feel alive or what what makes you happy? What makes you, and that is a very individual way of approaching the question. The, the second way of approaching the question, which is what brings you to life, what, what, what um, connects you with life or what really like brings you, it's just that it gets confusing because you think of it in the first way. But like what is like pulling you along? Luring you. Um, yes. And then, and then life being life in the greatest sense to your ancestors, to and to time, you know, all time, all space, um, to the universe. What really, like, um, I don't know, lures, you said lured, I'd like drags you to life. And so then you think like, okay, then it is, it, it is something that is, it is not necessarily what makes me happy, but it is what makes me feel, um, connected and generative and, um, it, it is satisfying in a much deeper way. And I, I think those are the things like it's, it's like the first the first is way of thinking of it is hard enough. And you, you have to do both because you can't you can't be like drug <laughs> like to life and, the, and not have those other things as a part of it's not sustainable. But I think if you think of it as like, you know, what's what's keeping you connected or what keeps you connected? to life in a larger sense then i think you get um you get out of the superficial which are still superficial but important um the surface the surface level which is like topsoil is really important 
and it leads to when you go deeper to like where the real nutrients are. So it's a clue. Yeah, well, and it's that is the seed, the, the rocky soil. So the thing that I forgot about that rocky soil, for some reason in my head, the way I remembered that is I thought one of the versions, it's told three times in scripture. And I thought one of the versions, it had, I, my memory was, it succeeded in the rocky soil. And that that was a miracle, that it was amazing that it did. But it's not true. All three of them, they, um, they it grows fast. So something in my young self remembered it grows fast as good. But the second part of that is that the roots are shallow. And so it, it, it doesn't last. So we have to have, um, that's the, one of the lessons of that story is that like you might have really fast, abundant growth, but like unless you have deep roots, then it doesn't last. And I think that's what you're saying is like that, you know, you could have really happy times um, that are that that are good for a while. But to last, you need something that is that takes some more intention. And that again, that that story that we have that we will achieve that that depth through our sheer work and will is not the way in. Yeah, um, somebody after church gave me a, a, another way of of um, saying that. Um, she said, you know, at the f at it, there's kind of like two ways that we two moments that she's come to think about, like you know, setting intentions in her life or setting goals. The first is at um, New Year's, and at New Year's you have these in, these um, resolutions that you work your way towards. It's like you set goals, and then it's up to you. And then when you don't make them, it's you failed. She said that way has always felt like a exercise in deep frustration. Um, and so she started a new practice where in the spring, she identifies those things that she feels like would, would fill her life with life, like spring is being filled with life. And then she, op she, she sets her intention more as opening herself up to that possibility. And she said, you know, what's funny is like when I tell myself I have to work my way towards the goal, then I think, well, then I didn't get it. Then it mm. was my failure. But if I think, oh, well, this is the thing I'm opening myself to. Sometimes the thing you open yourself to, you it took no yeah. work at all. It actually just, it like literally, but if you say it, it takes work to get your goals achieved, then, you know, then it only is your work. But we know, all of us, that in life, sometimes the thing you most want, you, it may take you zero work to do. Sometimes it does. T I mean, sometimes it takes tons of work, but sometimes those things you most want and most need in your life take no work. And she said, that's what I think spring is for, for us to just set those intentions of saying, what, what is that thing I want to open myself to and receive more in my life? I, I think that's so beautiful. It's such a, I, it's a perfect way of, of oh, thinking what I love about, about that idea. way of thinking about it is that it invites a partner's and other forces to be at the table. And because when I'm opening myself, yeah. it, it means that um, I'm going to go where there's energy. I'm going to, I'm going to investigate. I'm going to explore. And it's not something that, I don't know, just the, the feel of it energetically is not like muscle down, get ready. It's like, 
expand, mm-hmm. flow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think about, we were in a meeting the other week and we were trying to decide something big. And the question that came up, keep, kept, kept coming up to me was, what would be more f- most fun? I was channeling Elaine. And, and it wasn't mm-hmm. like a flippant question. It was like, hey, if we're going to do this hard thing, what would bring us the most life as we do it? And for me, it just felt freeing to think about it like that. Yeah, that this, that this need not be a, like slog. We can do hard things and, and do it, it like, and it could be fun. And so we just, that's a really different message than I think. I mean, definitely what I grew up with and felt was enculturated in me. And so it takes reminding ourselves a lot of that. That's why I really love that, uh, the poem that I used in the service that were, um, I just love this sort of, um, resigned moment that where she's just like, fine, then I'll take it. I'll take the gift. I'll take this new life because there is a point where you have to go, oh, okay, fine. I will take it. And it's like life just keeps trying to give you this new thing. And you have to try to finally give in and and accept and receive it. Well, maybe we'll end our time with that, with that poem to close us out. Thanks. Thanks for joining, Gretchen. I appreciated the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Thanks. This is Ada Lemon's Instructions on Not Giving Up, read by Reverend Elaine Arendtim Brink. More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crabapple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display of cherry limbs shoving their cotton candy-colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains, It's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy, the world's baubles and trinkets, leave the pavement strewn with the confetti of aftermath, the leaves come. Patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us a return to the strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine then. I'll take it, the tree seems to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist to an open palm. I'll take it all.